Hello, welcome to a new episode of Overmorrow's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Today's episode is dedicated to memory, memory palaces and memory theatres. We will look at this by inserting in our library one book by Francis Yates, titled The Art of Memory. Through Francis Yates' book, we will discover not only the ancient tradition of the art of memory, but also the modern studies that were developed by the people around Abi Warburg. So let's start with Abi Warburg, since his library and his institute were the place where Frances Yates developed her work. Who was Abi Warburg? Listeners who have been with us since the first episode might remember that I mentioned him as an inspiration for Overmorrow's library. Warburg was born in 1866 in Hamburg and he came from a very rich family of Jewish bankers. He wasn't particularly cut for that profession though. He spent most of his youth in Florence um, to the point of describing himself later in life as a Hamburger at heart, Jew by blood and Florentine in spirit. He spent so much time in Florence because he wanted to study the Italian Renaissance. But he didn't quite look at it in the normal way. He was looking for something within the images that would be able to unveil the survival of antiquity into the Renaissance and then from the Renaissance into modernity. So an uninterrupted line that goes from antiquity all the way to today. To develop these studies, Farburg renounced his inheritance, which is to say an incredible amount of money. He gave his position in the firm to his younger brother. In exchange, however, for unlimited funding for his library. Certainly his brother thought that this was an amazing deal, but I think that Warburg did his best to make it as expensive as possible. The library that he managed to create over the course of his entire life contains incredibly rare and precious manuscripts from the Middle Ages to early modernity. And it still is, is possible to visit it today at the Warburg Institute in London. Yes, because first he created a library. Then, with the help of his assistants, Gertrude Bing and Fritz Sachsen, he developed this library into an institute. The institute, like the library, was highly interdisciplinary. So he looked not just at art history, which was his specialism, but at everything around the images that he was studying. In order to be able to understand a painting from the Renaissance, for example, you need to understand contemporary psychology as much as ancient astrology and everything in between. So his library contains this entire world, the psychic world of that time, which to put together functions as a lens that we can apply today, as in any time, to understand the psychic atmosphere of our age. Abi Warburg died before the rise of Nazism, but in 1933, the institute was moved to London for understandable reasons. His work on the library, on the institute and on his own production was not very easy though. 
because Abi Warburg suffered from mental illness, schizophrenia and manic depression, most likely. He had a number of crises, and especially a particularly long one uh, that lasted during the entirety of the First World War until 1923. And when he recovered from his illness in 1923, to demonstrate that he had recovered, he gave a very famous and beautiful talk, which then became an essay, on the serpent ritual of the Pueblo Native Americans in New Mexico. Even just this allows you to understand, in part, to what extent Warburg considered himself healed, to the extent to which he was capable of remaining a fundamental intellectual player of his time, and also the extent of his interests, because he was looking at the serpent ritual of Pueblo Native Americans in the same way and also to, to, to substantiate the same thesis as he was doing in his studies on the Italian Renaissance. What was the thesis, the hypothesis behind Warburg's library? It can be traced to an idea that was developed in the 19th, early 20th century by a German zoologist and biologist, today little known, Richard Semon. Richard Semon's theories influenced Warburg particularly his theory of engrams. According to Richard Semon, and he's been later disproved by later uh, medical science, but it, this still remains a very fascinating, uh, if only poetic, intuition. So according to Semon, memories of traumatic events are inscribed within the brain. They are physically inscribed within our genetic composition, and this inscription, this memory that we have of traumatic events, is then passed on from parents to offsprings. Although this was disproved by later science, we can find a trace of this in contemporary, as in today's, studies on neuroplasticity. I'm thinking, for example, about Catherine Malabou's work on neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is that aspect of our brain that um, explains how our brain is not a solid, fixed and stable composition of connections, but is a fluid composition. The connections are reshaped. The brain is physically rewired by our experiences. Warburg developed this idea by Richard Semon towards art history. So he saw the same happening within art forms. When ancient people had traumatic experiences of the forces, the cosmic forces that influenced their life in the world, that experience was transmitted into the signs, the visual signs that they produced as part of their art, art production. So, for example, the figure of the nymph that we find in antiquity, we find also in the Renaissance, because within the figure of the nymph, with her flowing dress and flowing hair, it is inscribed the archaic primitive experience of the force of becoming, that force that bends everything a little bit, like we described in Simon Weil's idea of ananke, necessity, force in the Iliad. A terrifying force that somehow people manage to exercise by inscribing it within a symbol, a visual symbol, that bridles its violence. And the same we can find also in astrological images that survived from antiquity to the Renaissance and still today. For example, in his studies, 
Warburg looked also at the advertising of his own time to trace the continuity of certain images and gestures and lines to demonstrate that the same engrams had remained alive to, to his age. Around Abi Warburg coalesced a, a constellation of thinkers. Many of them had the same interdisciplinary approach as Abi Warburg. And in fact, they came from all paths of life and scholarship. And they converged within the Institute in a similar way as Abi Warburg used to do in his own work. When Warburg used to study images, he used to put them all together on large panels where images from the contemporary time, the ancient times and the Renaissance and so on will be put together according to relationships of familiarity same way he ordered his books, and without any further explanation. His talks would then unveil the continuity between all of them. Similarly, the Warburg Institute attracted people quite different, but complementary and somehow continuing each other's work. Among them, some of the most notable are Fritz Sachs, art historian and the author of The Beautiful Heritage of Images, or Jean Sesnek, the author of The Survival of the Pagan Gods, but also philosophers like Ernst Cassirer, the author of the famous trilogy, Philosophy of Symbolic Forms, Edgar Wind, Pagan Mysteries in the Renaissance, the very famous Ernest Gombrich, whose book, The Story of Art, has become an international bestseller, and the inventor of iconology, Erwin Panofsky, but also others not immediately affiliated with the Institute, such as Mario Pratz, whose little-known book on emblems, studies in 17th century images, is very interesting, especially, I would suggest, for anybody working on memes today. Have a look and you'll see why. Within this constellation, there was also Francis Yates, the author of the book that we are inserting in the library today, The Art of Memory. Francis Yates was interested in the Italian Renaissance, but especially in one aspect, the hermetic tradition. What is the hermetic tradition? Hermetic comes from Hermes, the Greek god, and Hermes Trismegistus, the thrice great Hermes, was the name of this semi-mythological figure, probably of late antiquity, who created a body of work in which he supposedly was conveying a previous, more ancient wisdom uh, of a mysteric type, a wisdom about the true nature of the cosmos, which has many elements in common with Neoplatonism, but also with the mysteries of ancient Greece, like the Orphic mysteries, for example. So that was her angle. She looked at that particular tradition, hermetic philosophy, and its survival and explosion during the Italian Renaissance and beyond. In this book, she the art of memory, she looks, though, at the technical quality of this tradition. Mnemotechnics, the way in which it is possible for a person to remember more than people usually are capable of. How do they do that? Well, for us today, this is not a very important task. We already have all the media we need that can remember things in our stead. But in antiquity, it wasn't quite like that. For a poet, for example, or an actor on stage, or a preacher during the times of Christianity, or a lawyer, it was necessary to be able to remember 
an incredible amount of material by heart and to be able to navigate through completely different and huge worlds of memories within their mind. How could they do that? The answer might be surprising through architecture and stage design. But let's get there by steps. In the art of memory, Francis Yates starts with the initiator of this tradition, Simonides of Sios, a Greek poet of the 5th, 6th century BC. The story goes that Simonides was invited to recite one of his poems at, in the house of a rich patron. This rich patron refused to pay him the full amount that was agreed because in the poem he had praised the gods for a long extent of, instead of praising the host. And especially this, he praised these two gods, Castor and Pollux. So at some point, somebody knocked on the door while Simonides was having an argument with the host about payments. They knocked on the door and it was two people, guess who they were? The gods, of course, who called him out for a moment. That moment, the house collapsed, burying everybody inside. Everybody was so shattered physically by the uh, collapse of the house that it was impossible to recognize the bodies around the table. But Simonides could recognize them, even though they were unrecognizable, because he had them all in his memory. How? Because in his memory, he had imprinted an image of the table and he could assign a name to every single one of the people sitting around it. He had created within his mind an image, a theater, a landscape, an architecture. By locating memories within this architecture in the mind, he was capable of remembering what other people could not remember. So the art of memory is the art of creating within one's mind an architecture where it is possible to store memories. We recreate a room, we assign to different objects within this room, in our mind, of course, meaning, and we link them with specific memories. Then it is sufficient to walk again through this room in our mind to bring them all back to us. This way of remembering these mnemotechnics became extraordinarily important during the Middle Ages. And it had developments that are quite extraordinary. For example, in the work of Ramon Lull, a mathematician, mystic, and philosopher from the 13th, 14th century Spain, these mnemotechnics becomes a mathematical geometrical method. He creates these extremely complex wheels where numbers, words, images, symbols are associated with different moments in, a, in, a, in the process of remembering but also they took on a theatrical form. This theatrical form is especially important in the work of Giulio Camillo. Giulio Camillo was an extraordinary person, Venetian uh, of the 15th, 16th century, and he created a real life memory theater, a real amphitheater. He got the money from uh, Francis I, King of France. In this amphitheater, the spectator, the protagonist, the person, would not be where people usually sit, the audience usually sits, but he would be on the stage. From the stage, the person would look at the seats, and on the seats they would find a number of statues arranged according to a rigid geometrical grid. Each statue would signify something, a dimension of the thing which the person wanted to remember. So 
that the entire theater, with all its lines and rows and the statues and the positions, would symbolize the totality of what there is, the totality of what can be remembered. By walking through the theater, somebody could remember something specific, but more importantly, they could remember how the world is structured, how many dimensions make up the world and each object, each memory in the world. Another person that worked in this theatrical mode was Robert Flood, English philosopher, occultist, many other things of the 16th, 17th century. He also created a memory theater, not a physical one. Um, but in his drawings, he created something that closely resembles the Globe Theatre in London. You know, the Globe Theatre was burnt down the first time and then rebuilt the second time. The second form of the Globe Theatre influenced Robert Flood's memory theatre, or perhaps was influenced by Robert Flood's theories on memory. But most importantly, perhaps, Giordano Bruno. Giordano Bruno famous heretic philosopher of the 16th century. He died exactly in the year 1600, was burnt alive in Rome by the Inquisition. Among the many things that he explored and wrote, also looked at the way in which memory operates, and especially how it operates in memory palaces. And he noticed how it is not just a way of storing memories, a memory palace, a memory theater is not just a warehouse of memories because memories don't act like that. Knowledge ascends towards the truth to the same extent to which the truth descends down to us. So it is a double movement. A memory theater then has to be not a prison for memories, but a house, a guest house for memories, a place where memories might want to descend down to us and visit us again. So the relationship with knowledge is no longer acquisitive and violent and possessive, but it is a relationship of hospitality and reciprocal visiting to the point that perhaps within our memories, we are just as foreign to our knowledge as the memories themselves are to us. So in this book, The Art of Memory, Francis Yates offers us not only an incredible feat of scholarship, a very, very interesting read for the historian, but also an important philosophical statement, which is usually diluted in the prose of the historian. Memory, as presented by her authors and by herself, is a creative act. And cosmology is a theater. What we know of the world what we know of anything in the world, after all, if you think about it, is a memory. You think of things, recognize the names and recognize the objects because you compare them with the memory that you have of them in your mind. And to a great extent, the world around you exists as a memory, only as a memory. And these memories, in order to remain and to visit you, need a place within your mind where they could live. And this place is a house but it's a house in the shape of a theater. It is a place where the spectacle of the world takes place as a spectacle. So as Shakespeare put it in As You Like It, all the world is a stage and all the men and women merely players. Yes, they are players in the play of the world. They are actors. 
but they are also scenographers. They set the design. They are costume designers of this theater. They are the playwrights of this theater, and they are the active audience to the spectacle that we call the world. Reading The Art of Memory by Francis Yates is just not an interesting exercise in scholarship, but is also a very useful reminder of the way in which we create the world, we make world in our mind. We make the world today, right now, in this moment, within ourselves as individuals, but also collectively and socially. The world that we imagine together is indeed a spectacle that takes place within the theatres, within people's minds. And we need to intervene on it by understanding that we are working on a play. A play in the sense of play, we looked at it in the previous episodes on video games, but also a play in the sense of a theatrical performance, a total performance, a bit like those total theatre performances imagined by Richard Wagner. This is too interesting a topic to leave it here. And since the time has run out for this episode, we will continue discussing it in the next episode with a special guest. We will talk with Bill Sherman, the director of the Warburg Institute in London and art historian. So please follow me for the next episode of Overmorrow's Library here at the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva. Goodbye.